With the government having regrouped at Versailles and the regular army in retreat with them, the National Guard set up shop at the Hôtel de Ville. Their first order of business was to elect a leader, the first candidate of whom wasn't even French, but none other than Giuseppe Garibaldi, the man who had been responsible for the unification of Italy ten years earlier. Needless to say, while flattered, he politely declined, as he had his own responsibilities over the newly established nation he helped build. Instead, the National Guard set up a committee of some 38 members, with its temporary headquarters in a nearby school. This central committee, as it came to be called, began its life by first voting to reject the authority of both the Third Republic, as well as that of General Dorel de Baladin, under whose command the National Guard had officially been placed. Thus the radicalized troops set about conquering Paris on March 18, 1871. With no opposition to challenge them, they deployed themselves first to the Latin Quarter, namely the Pantheon, to secure a massive stockpile of gunpowder that had been left behind following the regular army's retreat from the city. From there they crossed the Seine, whereupon they seized control of the Prefecture of Police, while another battalion took over the headquarters of the National Guard near Place Vendôme. The Ministry of Justice, too, was secured, and incorporated into the Commune's ever-expanding sphere of influence. By nightfall, the ministries of war, finance, and the interior had all fallen into the National Guard's clutches. The following morning, the Central Committee had relocated to the Hôtel de Ville, and some 20,000 National Guardsmen gathered outside the building to celebrate their victory over claiming the city. A red flag was soon raised over the building, and the Paris Commune began its operation. The first order of business on the agenda was to extend legal authority over Paris. Some of the more far-left-leaning members of the Central Committee favored a raid on Versailles to disperse the government of the Third Republic, as well as oust Adolphe Thiers from his post as its chief executive, but this was overruled. Instead, they officially lifted the state of siege that had ravaged the city since the final days of the Franco-Prussian War, and dispatched a delegation comprised of representatives, referred to as mayors, from each of the city's arrondissements, led by Georges Clemenceau, that self-same Montmartre doctor sympathetic to the communard's plight, to Versailles in an attempt at negotiating with Thiers for special recognition and independent status for Paris. In the meantime, various commissions were formed in order to administer authority and order over the city, and council elections were planned for March 23, 1871. But trouble rocked the commune from the start. The day before said elections, a group of demonstrators designating themselves the Friends of Peace descended on Place Vendôme. They were met by armed National Guardsmen, who barred them from assembling on the premises. When one of the demonstrators fired at the troops, they retaliated with shots into the crowd, killing twelve and wounding several others. This incident came to be known as the Massacre in the Rue de la Pix, a cruel and ironic twist of fate, as the name of the street where it occurred translates to the Street of Peace. Elsewhere in the city, tensions were growing between the mayors of the arrondissements and the Central Committee. The same day as the massacre in the Rue de la Pix, the committee defiantly declared that it, not the mayors, was the sole authority over Paris. Clemenceau, who had been deemed mayor of Montmartre, was stripped of his administrative powers, and the city hall there, as well as those of the first and second arrondissements, were seized by the National Guard. These actions caused the now former mayor of Montmartre to declare, with apparent disgust, that, quote, We are caught between two hands of crazy people, those sitting in Versailles and those in Paris, unquote. With all this going on, the elections were delayed for a few days, but were held on March 26th, the results of which established a council of 92 members, one for every 20,000 residents. The Third Republic, naturally, advised Parisians from going to the polls, though their words fell upon deaf ears. In all 233,000 of the city's populace, out of 485,000 registered voters, all of whom were men, as women were barred from voting altogether, had participated in the election. 
While those of the upper classes had refused to show up, the working class had turned out en masse to let their political voice be heard. In the end, what was originally supposed to be a council of 92 only ended up with a mere 60, as several of the candidates, some of whom were middle-of-the-road Republicans and left-wing radicals, refused to take their seats. They simply didn't like where the commune's authority was heading, based upon those previous brushes with demonstrators and the stripping of some of the city's mayors. Regardless, on March 28th, the National Guard held a ceremony and parade to mark the occasion at the Hôtel de Ville, complete with streamers and red flags. Literal red flags, I mean, not like warnings, though those were clearly on the horizon as well. No sooner had the parade finished and the crowds dispersed did the commune hold its first meeting. The mood was light, cheery, and optimistic. It was in this spirit that the first tasks were carried out. On that day alone, the draft and death penalty were abolished, and a proposal was placed on the table that would send delegations to other French cities to encourage and help build similar communes elsewhere. But the council was also firm in its beliefs and stances. For example, membership in the commune could not coincide with being a member of the Third Republic's National Assembly. Anyone who remained on the National Assembly would be stripped of his communard membership and would be dealt with harshly, including imprisonment and even death sentence. In addition, all deliberations were to be kept secret and safely under wraps so that word wouldn't reach the quote-unquote enemy, a.k.a. Thiers and his cabinet. Despite asserting such authority, however, the commune didn't have any one leader like a president or prime minister until much later on. Instead, a series of nine commissions were formed to oversee Parisian affairs with the National Guard being the sole military operation protecting the fledgling political entity. With everything off the ground at last, it appeared that the Paris commune was off to a great start. Those familiar with Greek tragedy will no doubt be familiar with the concept of hamartia. Translated as a tragic flaw, it's the fly in the proverbial ointment in the trajectory of a tragic hero. For Oedipus, it was unknowingly marrying his own mother after killing his father. For Jason, it was Medea slaughtering their two sons as revenge for their husband's infidelities. And for the Paris Commune, it was having two commanders being in charge over the National Guard. Now bear in mind, the power of two isn't always a bad thing. In the case of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, a dual monarchy simply meant that two authorities could rule over a vast swath of land to maintain order and balance, so that no one leader had too much responsibility. Such was also the case for Rome, where one emperor ruled the western portion, while another governed the eastern. But for the Paris Commune, it would ultimately prove disastrous, as it was unclear from the get-go who'd be responsible for leading the troops into the inevitable war with the Third Republic. It was this hamartia that would ultimately cost the fledgling state its life. In its early days, the Commune brought about several changes that were considered new and radical at the time. The famed tricolor flag of France we all know today was abandoned in favor of a simple red banner, the key symbol of socialism. Separation of church and state, a policy that had never before been achieved in French politics, was put in place. Child labor was abolished entirely, and all overdue rent from the time of the German siege of the city was forgiven. In addition, pensions were granted to widows and children of National Guardsmen who had died in battle. As one can see, several of these changes were quite benevolent and humanitarian, to say nothing of forward-thinking, as some of these would go on to be implemented by future French political institutions and governments. While women had not been allowed to vote in the council elections, and there were no female members on the governing board, they nevertheless played an integral role in the commune's brief life. They built barricades and skirmishes with the regular army, and would care for the communard wounded. One Josephine Marchias, a washerwoman, would even go as far as to take up arms during one particular exchange with the regular army, proudly and defiantly proclaiming that, quote, If I'm killed, it will be because I've done some killing first, unquote. Feminist movements within the commune were also organized, the spiritual descendants of those that had been formed during the French Revolution. Such organizations were instrumental in opening free schools for the community's children, and even ran radical and leftist publications that saw widespread circulation, extending even beyond the city's limits.
But not all changes brought on by the Commune were made solely on paper. The first official civic event, in fact, occurred quite late in the governing body's existence. On May 16, 1871, a column in Place Vendôme honoring Napoleon Bonaparte's political and military achievements was toppled due to its being, quote, a monument of barbarism, as well as a symbol of brute force and false pride, unquote. All this was done to the strains of La Marseillaise, the French national anthem, as onlookers, as well as two battalions of the National Guard, stood watching nearby. Four days earlier, Adolphe Thiers' Paris residence had been ransacked and destroyed by an unruly mob, though to this day it's unclear whether this too was made official by the Commune's orders. Regardless, such acts became as commonplace as symbols of the old order were deliberately being demolished and replaced. Meanwhile, word had reached Versailles of the Commune's changes to the capital. Thiers and his cabinet hastily organized a new and reliable army, several of the troops of whom had just been released by the Germans as prisoners of war. Still others hailed from towns and cities throughout the country. A new commander in the form of Patrice Macmont was hand-chosen by Thiers himself. Macmont had served in the Franco-Prussian War, most notably leading a victory against the Austrians in Italy alongside Napoleon III. Word of Macmont's appointment as head of the regular army quickly spread throughout France due to his enduring popularity and renown amongst average French citizens. Naturally, it wasn't long before the news reached Paris, at which time the Commune responded by mobilizing its own forces. Officially, that's to say on paper, the Communards boasted a national guard of some 200,000 strong, but with many still in exile abroad after being released by the Germans, to say nothing of the casualties sustained in the conflict, that number was likely more along the lines of 65,000. In any case, the Commune rallied its available, available troops and dispatched them to the city ramparts equipped with rifles, cannons, and enough gunpowder to level entire city blocks. As word of the regular army's advance towards Paris reached the capital, the National Guard hastily captured Fort Issy on the southern outskirts of the city. Located near the Porte de Versailles, it stood directly along the route the army would take to enter Paris. The garrison, under the command of one Colonel Léon Magie, endured both a siege and a heavy barrage of bombardment for three days and nights until a ceasefire was issued by General Ernest de Cissé of the regular army. With permission from Macmont, Cissé sent a message to Magie, stating that he'd spare the lives of the National Guardsmen holding down the fort, if you will, if they surrendered it to his forces. Giving the order, Magie evacuated the men from their positions within the fort. But when word of this reached the Central Committee, a fresh wave of reinforcements was sent to reoccupy the fort. Realizing that he'd been duped, Cissé, incensed, continued his bombardment with even greater intensity than before. For nine days, between April 30th and May 8th, the National Guard held down the fort, but left soon after, unable to withstand any more attacks. From there, the regular army pushed through each of the city's defenses one by one, until, on May 20th, they'd reached the final line of defense. In that time, Macmont's troops had laid waste to Passy, Autoy, and Trocadero, each of which were Paris's westernmost neighborhoods. Shells rained down incessantly on homes and businesses, killing and injuring several civilians as a result. The National Guard fought back as best they could from the city's ramparts, though they withdrew from one particular stretch of the defensive wall late on May 20th. Upon receiving word of this from an informant within the city, Macmont gave the order for two battalions of the regular army to proceed, which they did with no resistance. From there, they were able to secure the city gates at the Porte de Saint-Cloud, La Mouette, and Porte de Versailles from within. By dawn the next morning, some 50,000 troops had reached the famed Avenue des Champs-Élysées, well within the city limits. For reasons that are unknown, when word reached the Commune's headquarters that the regular army had breached the city walls, the news was dismissed as false, and the standard procedure of ringing church bells to warn Parisians of the impending danger wasn't carried out. Instead, the Central Committee went about its affairs, which concluded at around 8 p.m. that evening. At last, the next morning, the bells were rung, and Louis-Charles de l'Escluse, one of the Commune's leaders, issued a proclamation which read, in part, quote, 
In the name of this glorious France, mother of all the popular revolutions, permanent home of the ideas of justice and solidarity, which should be and will be the laws of the world, march at the enemy, and may your revolutionary energy show him that someone can sell Paris, but no one can give it up or conquer it. The Commune counts on you. Count on the Commune. This was quickly followed by a proclamation from the Committee of Public Safety, which read, quote, to arms, that Paris be bristling with barricades, and that behind these improvised ramparts it will hurl again its cry of war, its cry of pride, its cry of defiance, but its cry of victory. Because Paris, with its barricades, is undefeatable. That revolutionary Paris, that Paris of great days, does its duty. The Commune and the Committee of Public Safety will no doubt do theirs." Unquote. Boy, if that doesn't stir up some civic pride and patriotic fervor, I don't know what does. But despite these calls to action, the public, seeing as how they were greatly outnumbered, largely refused to answer. Instead, only some fifteen to 20,000 people, including women and children, took up the most rudimentary of arms against MacMahon's advancing troops. These ragtag bands of communards were organized by neighborhoods, communities, and quartiers, and therefore weren't gathered collectively in a defensive force to meet the enemy head-on. Thus the various districts fell to the regular army, one by one. Not only did MacMahon's forces have superior firepower, but they were also skilled in certain strategies and tactics. This allowed them to outsmart the communards and easily overstep the latter's infamous barricades. By burrowing under houses or breaking through the walls of neighboring businesses, the regular army was able to successfully establish positions above said barricades as well as work their way around and behind them. Completely surrounded, the communards, more often than not, had no other choice but to surrender, and several of their posts were therefore miraculously relinquished without bloodshed or a fight. By noon that same day, MacMahon's men had secured a large portion of the city, though historic accounts recall how they moved, quote, slowly and cautiously, in no hurry, unquote. By comparison, the commune was frantic, not only trying to maintain a hold on the situation, but hastily throwing up barricades and what national guardsmen and resources they had to places that were within the advancing army's path. On May 23rd, the conflict had arrived at Montmartre, where the commune's first rumblings had taken place a few months prior. The National Guard had assembled barricades and makeshift forts at the base of the hill. Though equipped with 85 leftover cannons and 20 rapid-fire guns, there was no ammunition available, as the forces present hadn't expected a direct attack. Each of these fell, including one at Chauss-Clignancourt, famously manned, if you'll pardon the pun, by a battalion of some 30 women. By noon that day, Montmartre had been captured by the regular army, and the tricolor flag was raised. Each of the 42 communards who were captured were shot. In the 8th arrondissement on the Rue Royale, a large barricade around the Madeleine Church was seized by MacMahon's forces. There, 300 communard prisoners were rounded up and executed on the spot, making it the largest mass execution in the battle between the Third Republic and the Paris Commune. Angered and incensed by the death of their comrades, the remaining National Guardsmen sought revenge by setting fire to several government buildings. Equipped with oil cans, lit torches, and matches, they first set the Rue Royale ablaze as well as the nearby Rue du Faubourg Saint-Honoré. This was followed by other similar incidents in the Rue Saint-Florentin, du Bac, du Lille, de Rivoli, and other streets throughout the city. The Tuileries Palace, long the residence of French monarchs from the 16th century all the way up to Napoleon III, was also set ablaze. Soaked in oil and turpentine, Commander Jules Bergeret of the National Guard gave the order for his men to light the fuse. The resulting inferno lasted for two days, at which point most of the structure had been completely destroyed, save for a tiny portion on the south side of the building, the Pavillon de Flore. When all was said and done, Bergeret famously sent a message back to the commune's headquarters at the Hôtel de Ville, proclaiming that, quote, The last vestiges of royalty have just disappeared. I wish that the same will happen to all the monuments of Paris, unquote. Prophetically, his wish would more or less come true over the ensuing couple days, starting with the Richelieu Library at the Louvre, which was connected to the Tuileries. 
At around 2 a.m. the following morning, however, it was the commune's turn to face the burning end of a lit torch. The Hôtel de Ville, once the proud symbol of the commune's authority, was burned to the ground. With all wounded guardsmen, central committee members, and Delescluze himself having been evacuated, the Paris commune all but folded in the wake of this incident. Those in charge donned civilian clothes, intent on fleeing the city, leaving their remaining comrades in the neighborhoods formerly under their protection to fend for themselves. The Palais de Justice, the prefecture of police, several theaters, including the one at the Porte Saint-Martin, was also burned, as was the Church of Saint-Eustache. Outbreaks at the Palais Royal, Louvre, and most famously the Notre-Dame Cathedral were all put out before any significant damage could take place. But it wasn't just the buildings that were quote-unquote executed during this time. As the regular army advanced on the city, it carried out summary executions of all communards they'd encountered and taken as prisoners. In retaliation, the communards executed any and all army troops they found, resulting in a veritable bloodbath for which both sides were equally accountable. No one was safe. Even an archbishop and five priests were lined up against a wall and shot to death. With Delescluze having relocated the commune's headquarters to the city hall building in the 11th arrondissement, all he could do was essentially watch in horror as both his own factions along with those of the enemy were picked off one by one. Yet even he wasn't safe. In one of the more pivotal moments of what came to be known as the Bloody Week, Delescluze, with the regular army ready to capture the commune's city hall headquarters on the evening of May 25th, ceremoniously put on his red sash of office, stepped outside the building, and climbed atop the protective barricade to surrender his fate to Bagmal's forces. As you could probably guess, no sooner had he reached the top of the makeshift pile was he shot dead. Had he lived, the outcome for the communards likely wouldn't have been any different. As it was, by then the regular army had secured three-fifths of the city, with the National Guardsmen clinging on for dear life to the few arrondissements that were still under their control. Over the next couple of days, even these were relinquished, and the Place de la Bastille, ironically the location where the French Revolution had begun over 80 years prior, became one of the last bastions of communard resistance. At last, on May 28th, all fighting ceased. The remaining National Guardsmen, having put up a brave and valiant fight, surrendered to the army of the Third Republic. Thus the Paris Commune caved just shy of two months into its existence. In all, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 communards were killed during the bloody week alone. Still more had been taken as prisoners or fled into exile. Those who had been captured were either shot or put in prison, largely depending upon their involvement in both the creation of the short-lived state as well as the crimes, quote-unquote, they committed during the skirmish with the regular army. As you could probably imagine, the bloody week left a stain on the face of Paris for years, even decades afterwards, the scars of which can still be seen and felt today in certain areas of the city. However, to say that it was unwarranted is, I feel, a bit too simplistic a statement. Indeed, conflict should only be used as a last resort, but for the Parisians, who suffered greatly during the Franco-Prussian War, it did seem to be the only option left, as it likely felt that the old monarchy, as well as the new Third Republic, had completely abandoned them in the wake of the war's conclusion. Still, the Paris Commune remains a bitter, albeit interesting chapter in the city's long and storied history, one that needs to be told. Thanks for listening and for joining me on this three-part journey on the Paris Commune. I hope you found it both enlightening and as fascinating as I did. Next week, we'll be heading further back in time to a man who was the first person in the ancient Mediterranean to lay eyes on the mysterious lands in the far north of Europe. If that sounds like something you'd like to learn about, then be sure to tune in. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support me to ensure continued content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. From there, you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit your budget or monetary situation. Listening and sharing also help in big ways, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. Have a great weekend, guys, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.